All right, so um, last week, uh, for those who are visiting, we are, have been working through church history. I believe we are somewhere around lesson 33 or 34, as I recall. 34. Well, thank you. Lesson 34. Well, uh, and I'm a little concerned. I didn't hear, um, I didn't get verification from Brother Sean whether last week's actually got recorded or not. So uh, that would be uh, a hole in uh, a hole in the, the black hole of church history, uh, all due to whether we did or did not get it recorded last week. I don't know, but uh, he was gone, so uh, things happened, I guess. Um, and I know last week we covered uh, some of the rest of the Christological controversies after the Council of Nicaea and started into. Uh, early church theories on the subject of the atonement. And if you will recall, since I'm not sure whether that got uploaded or not, at least we can make the atonement section um, complete. Um, I had introduced you to a book, uh, The Development of Christian Doctrine by Louis Burkhoff. And I had given you a, um, a quotation uh, from Burkhoff. I'll go ahead and repeat that just to refresh the memory or to just get us going along those lines. Did we, uh, were we able to find last week's? No. Oh, okay. Well, for those wanting the whole section of church history, we missed the Council of Chalcedon and Christological controversies after that. Uh, that's, a, that's a shame. I should have uh, double recorded on my iPad and I did not. And uh, so I apologize for that, but there's not much we can do about it because we can't exactly go back and, uh, and fix that. So my apologies, uh, maybe that's covered. I know it was covered under the old church history section. Maybe we can put a link in uh, or something or find that old. I know I still have the recordings of the old, uh, the old, old, old stuff, really, really bad audio recordings from the 1990s. Um, on, uh, on church history. Maybe we can track that down, but uh, my apologies for that. Um, quoting from uh, Louis Burkhoff, Irenaeus, who, and I remember Irenaeus, we're talking about the end of the second century, who stands midway between the East and the West, agrees with the apologists, Justin and others, in contemplating man as enslaved by the powers of darkness and looks upon redemption partly as deliverance from the power of Satan, though he does not look upon it as a satisfaction due to Satan. His idea is rather that the death of Christ satisfied the justice of God and thus liberates man. At the same time, and this is very important, he gives prominence to the recapitulation theory. Now, since I have my, my cool markers here now, recapitulation. Recapitulation theory. That's a big one. The recapitulation theory. Uh, the idea that Christ recapitulates in himself all the stages of human life and all the experiences of these stages, including those which belong to our state as sinners. By his incarnation in human life, he thus reverses the course on which Adam, by his sins, started humanity, and thus becomes a new leaven in the life of mankind. He communicates immortality to those who are united to him by faith, 
and effects an ethical transformation in their lives and by his obedience compensates for the disobedience of Adam. And evidently, Tertullian pretty much follows this line as well. Now, the idea of recapitulation is central to Irenaeus' arguments against the Gnostics. Remember, he wrote a number of books uh, against the Gnostics toward the end of the second century. And it was in that context that I mentioned to you that um, if this is going to be the case, if Jesus is going to recapitulate various aspects of man's life and his own life, he couldn't have lived only like 33. So Irenaeus is the one who tells us is the first time to use the language of apostolic tradition, where he claims that the apostles taught something and then passed that tradition down orally rather than in scripture. And what did the apostles teach? That Jesus was more than 50 years of age when he died. So it's very significant to me in light of later claims about apostolic tradition, especially within Roman Catholicism today, that the first example we have of this, no one, including Roman Catholics, believe that it's accurate. So if the very first person to go, oh, I got this from the apostles, didn't have it right, how about the people 1,800 years later? How much chance they have? Oh, well, we've got something there written down, but it came from the apostles. Uh, doesn't seem overly likely, and it came from the, idea, the, the reality that Irenaeus has this overriding theology of recapitulation. And so even though the, the biblical text doesn't give us any reason um, to believe that Jesus was 50 some odd years old or more, or more than 50 years of age, um, when you had this overriding idea, well, Jesus is recapitulating everything, so he had to at least enter into what would be considered somewhat of an old age uh, for him to fulfill these things. Well, you don't really need to derive it from Scripture. You can force it onto Scripture, which is what, uh, which is what he does. Now, Clement of Alexandria, remember, uh, you've heard, when we talked about Clement of Alexandria, you probably, you might have gotten the, the sense from me that, that Clement isn't the most, well, you know, if, if I'm going to, if I'm, once in a while I'll, I'll do some reading from early sources, just simply to do reading from early sources. He's not my favorite guy to go to, you know, uh, just, but um, Clement of Alexandria goes even farther away from the biblical pattern, embracing at points a rather Gnostic idea for he sees the atonement as a payment of debt by the teaching of true knowledge. Now remember, the Gnostics, how do, you, how do you advance and move toward freeing the true inner spirit from this, this prison of the physical body? It's through the gaining of true knowledge. And so Clement, when he doesn't have um, a real biblical theology, but he's still fighting forms of Gnosticism, gives in at points and sort of borrows categories uh, from them. And then good old Origen. Well, you can imagine, given what we've said about Origen in the past, uh, Origen presents a number of ideas, never really putting them into a consistent whole. Uh, most importantly, presents the idea known 
as the ransom to Satan theory. The ransom to Satan theory. See, I'm writing stuff down for you, dear. I just, uh, my wife always says she appreciates when I would when I write on the board. It's, so that's what we're doing. Uh, Thirty-five years. I've I've figured out. Yeah, that's uh, suggest that. That's that's okay. Um, quoting Burkhoff, Satan was deceived in the transaction. Christ offered himself as a ransom to Satan, and Satan accepted the ransom without realizing he would not be able to retain his hold on Christ because of the latter's divine power and holiness. Satan swallowed the bait of Christ's humanity and was caught on the hook of his divinity. Thus the souls of all men, even those in Hades, were set free from the power of Satan. Now remember, Origen is a universalist. Even Satan himself will eventually be saved. So uh, this was sort of a, this was trickery on God's part, basically. Uh, catching Satan, and he doesn't see what's going to be able, what's going to happen and doesn't realize what's going to happen. And so you get this, uh, this ransom to Satan uh, theory. Now, Athanasius, remember Athanasius, the eventually Bishop of Alexandria, 328, very important in defending the Council of Nicaea, provides us with the first in-depth discussion of the entire subject and presents biblical sub the, sub the, the biblical substitution concept more clearly than anyone before him. Now remember, he's writing mid-fourth century. So I've often said, you know, the first real treatise we get that has at least what we would hope to be so, sort of a meaningfully biblical level of argumentation to it, middle of the fourth century. Um, that's a long ways down the road. I mean, um, that's if you know, if if you consider the time period between when when you've got Hebrews being written and the first meaningful treatise reflecting some of that, uh, that would be as far as from now until Star Trek, <laughs> uh, you know, twenty three seventeen or something like that. Um, down the road, it's a little bit of a little bit of time has passed. Um, but he also presents, and I, I think this is important to cover, uh, Athanasius also presents something called now what would what would you how would you translate that? Theosis. That's sort of hard to, yeah. It's, it's, I know what the concept is. I'm not sure exactly how you'd translate it, though. I don't know how you say it. Maybe it's godliness. Like God? Yeah. Um, theosis is, well, Athanasius gives us sort of the earliest version of it and then it's going to grow after that and it becomes very important in Eastern Orthodoxy. It really doesn't end up having much of a place in uh, Western theology. But some people 
have made a connection between this and what famous reformed writer? Let me see if anyone's tracking with me, if you're all just sort of going, eh, I'll just write it down and we'll worry about it later type of, type of thing. Anybody know who I'm referring to? No one? You can make the argument. So Theosis, Athanasius, it, it becomes very important in uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. And then sort of maybe, I think there's some element to this if you, if you read it you know, carefully within the proper parameters and stuff like that. But if you've done much reading in a very, very well-known American theologian, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards um, has this idea. But what is, what is theosis? Well, Athanasius said something along the lines of God became man so that man might become God. And you might say, he was a Mormon. No, he, he wasn't. Um, uh, no one in the ancient church, uh, no one in the modern church, uh, was, by talking about theosis, denying monotheism. You weren't, you weren't going into monism, the idea that all is God and God is all or anything like that. The idea is that what, what takes place in union with Christ in light of him being the God-man is more than anything Adam ever would have experienced if Adam hadn't fallen. And so there is a transformation and change of the very nature of the creature in union with Christ. Not that that person ever becomes deity or is absorbed into God or, or anything like that. But there is in the, you know, they focus, of course, upon the term uh, that's found in Scripture of glorification. And so what, what does that, what does glorification mean? Um, there is a, a participation, well, we'll use Peter's terms, a participation in the divine nature. Um, the creature doesn't cease to be a creature because the creature came into uh, existence at a point in time. So something that's basic to the very nature of God, eternality, can never be uh, attributed to, uh, to the creature. But still, there is something more than than because of union with Christ, because of union with the God-man, there's something more than uh, anything Adam ever would have experienced if he had remained in an innocent state. And so it's, a, it's an expansion of, sort of a speculative expansion of um, the concept of glorification. And for Athanasius, uh, what was important about this is it is attached to the concept of atonement because his argument was that if Christ was not truly the God-man, then there could not have been an atonement. He truly needed to be man, but he truly needed to be God as well. And so because of union with the God-man, there has to be a, a, a change of our own nature, an elevation of our own 
uh, nature. Edwards is going to put this more in the future, in the contemplation of the divine being, the experience of eternal life, um, and, and ever growing more like Christ and participation in the divine nature in that fashion. Um, so uh, when you hear theosis, the, the Mormons do like to use this. They try to say, see, here's evidence of what we believed. That's, that's a, a real misuse because Athanasius and those who followed him um, in the East uh, certainly never ever denied uh, monotheism. They never ever denied there are only three divine persons, any of those types of things, which of course Mormonism does. Um, so the idea that this is the same thing, but you know, how balanced is this when you look at it from the New Testament perspective? I mean, you do have phrases such as partaking of the divine nature, uh, being made like unto the Son of God, etc., etc. What does exactly that mean? When is it? Uh, is it something that's solely future? You know, if we're looking at glorification, uh, what's, what's the now and the not yet aspect of these things? We've been seated in the heavenly places in Christ, yes, but we still uh, exist upon this, this earth and you have all those things going on. So um, Theosis comes out in um, Athanasius's uh, materials and uh, it, it's good to I think know that it's there so you don't get blindsided by it because generally it's not explained in an overly balanced uh, balanced fashion and uh, that can be that can be a bit of a bit of a problem so after Athanasius then in the middle of the fourth century then uh, Augustine comes along writing uh, at the end of that same century, in the beginning of the 5th, so around you know, the year 400, uh, he provides us what might be called an orthodox summary, de-emphasizing those elements in earlier writings that are the most unbiblical, and emphasizing the Pauline concepts of justification, substitution, and forgiveness. Um, but even at that point, uh, Augustine, again, uh, is... Augustine does not have an in-depth handle on the Greek language. He's primarily reading the scriptures in the Latin. Um, and as a result, there are weaknesses in, for example, his understanding of what justification means, what the dikaiao, dikaiosune uh, word grouping means in the original languages. Um, and so, while you can see a more biblical element to his uh, argumentation, it's, um, it's really, and there will, be, there will be further developments in this area, not much, but there will be some further developments in the medieval period with Anselm and Abelard. We'll get to them later on. But there's no question that the most biblically based, textually based um, discussion and teaching on the subject of the atonement comes post-Reformation. And you might say, well, why? I mean, if, if it's part of the very central aspect um, of uh, the teaching of the church, 
why would this be something that would come so much farther down uh, in history? And that is, I think, something that's worth, worth asking that question. Um, there we go. Um, and I've sort of alluded to this before, but I think primarily it's due to the fact that the biblical categories of atonement are always so deeply expressed in the language of the Old Covenant, in the language of sacrifice, in the language of the book of Hebrews. I mean, the whole, what, what, what's, the, what's the whole realm of the book of Hebrews' discussion of Jesus' sacrificial death? High priesthood, the offering on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, etc., etc. And once Origen does his deed, um, in um, disconnecting us from the Old Testament as an equal source of theological revelation as the new. And that's what he did. I mean, let's just be honest. That's, that's what took place. Um, even when people weren't as unbalanced as origin, the necessary deep connection to the Old Testament text and the knowledge of the Old Testament text. Um, it's it's going to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll tell you the story at the time of the, just before the Reformation, of uh, the, first, the first individual to write for us a Hebrew grammar so that Christians could start reading the Old Testament in Hebrew again, had to risk his life he had to, first of all, he had to find a Jewish rabbi that would be willing to teach him because that was, the Jewish rabbi was risking his life to do this. And the Christian was risking his life uh, to, uh, to do this. They had to do it at night. And this is just simply to write a basic Hebrew grammar to start the process of allowing any Christian scholars to even be able to read the Old Testament's original language again. Um, that's, that's how bad it was going to become. And so when your knowledge of the Old Testament is, is, is based upon, solely upon a secondary translation and your fundamental approach to it is that this needs to be read allegorically, it's not overly shocking that it's only once the Reformation takes place and origin is moved out of the way. And the, the phrase, uh, ad fontes, anybody know what that means? To the source, to the sources, um, becomes the battle cry of the Renaissance and hence of the reformers and therefore not the Vulgate, we go to the Greek, we go to the Hebrew, etc., etc. It's not till then that you get back to a point where you can now do the kind of biblical exegesis that's going to allow you to really go in depth on the issue of uh, atonement and do so from a fully biblical perspective where you have all of Scripture functioning uh, rather than only a portion of Scripture functioning. And the other reason 
it becomes so important uh, really to the second and third generation re, uh, reformers is because once the initial battle on justification has been you know, put out there and all the positions have been clearly expressed, then you start getting the questions about the foundations of justification, which takes you to the atonement of Christ. And you've got the issue of the mass, and you've got the Roman Catholic traditions on these areas. And so once you put aside the idea of the mass, uh, now you have uh, the ground laid for doing the kind of, of work that needs to be done in understanding what the scriptures say concerning the atonement itself. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why it really uh, takes some, uh, a very, fairly long period of time before you get some of the most in-depth reflection upon and work upon these, these particular subjects. And um, if we don't recognize the currents of church history and things like that, it can be really easy for us to go, well, that just must not be an important subject then. No, it's a vitally important subject. Uh, but we need to recognize what was going on in the East and the West. And, and uh, I suppose I should comment on this uh, before we go to Augustine, because uh, that's our next subject. But, you know, I have, you know, we have up here the, the, um, the phrase, and as some of you know, recently there has been a little more reflection upon uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, like I said, we're about to look at Augustine, and so uh, Augustine is not viewed very highly in Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, he is the very poster child of the West, and uh, Eastern Orthodox don't find much to be overly excited about in, uh, in Augustine, and there's no one outside of Paul uh, who has influenced the categories of thought of Western Christendom more than Augustine. This isn't. I mean, I'm talking about historically speaking. Uh, has Calvin and Luther, yeah, yeah, they have, but Anybody who reads Calvin and Luther knows they were deeply influenced by Augustine. So at best, they're secondary beyond that. Um, so when, we, when most of us consider Eastern Orthodoxy, we just automatically categorize it as popeless Catholics on the other side of Greece, <laughs> uh, is, is basically about as far as most of us go. Um, there are very, very few Western Christians who have almost any meaningful knowledge of how real Eastern Orthodox thought functions. It is very difficult to even begin to try to explain any of this to Western thinkers because we do not think in the categories that they think, and they, and they don't think in our categories. And so um, they look at us as, well, they look, the funny thing is, Ethan Orsox would look at, at us as popeless Catholics too. Uh, we're just rebels against the Bishop of Rome. Uh, but when they look at what we argue about, they would say, you're all just the same coin, just one side, the other side, and you're a different coin, coinage than we are. 
they don't get why we ask the questions that we ask. Well, what do you believe about justification? Do you believe in the imputation of the righteousness of Christ? And, and they're just like, you know, we want, when, when, we, uh, when we debate with Roman Catholicism, we can go to certain documents. You know, for hundreds of years, you would go to uh, the Council of Trent. You've got the Cannes Decrees of the Council of Trent, and it said this, and it says this, and you can go to paragraph this and subparagraph that, and, and there you go. And you compare that with the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter one, paragraph, and, and you know, it's, it's straightforward. It's very forensic in the sense of it has a very strongly legal aspect to it. Uh, it's all laid out in systematic theologies. There is no systematic theology in Eastern Orthodoxy. I mean, we can sort of sit back and try to create one, but they don't. Oh yeah, there's been some books in the West written, but in real Eastern Orthodox thought, um, especially Eastern in the sense of Russian, uh, Ukrainian, uh, you know, Greek Orthodoxy is sort of stuck in the middle to where they, they butt right up against the West. And so there's a little more structure there. But there's, there's a tremendous amount of mysticism. And you and I think of mysticism as New Agers with crystals and weirdo stuff like that. That's not, that's not really what, what I mean when I refer to mysticism amongst the Eastern Orthodox. For the Eastern Orthodox, when you ask them what they believe, their answer is very straightforward. Well, listen to us pray. Watch us worship. It's the liturgy that defines the theology. And so we don't need a book that puts it into paragraphs and subparagraphs. You just listen to the prayers. And you just watch what takes place. And you've probably heard the attraction of Eastern Orthodoxy described as smells and bells. Smells and bells. Why? Well, uh, if you go into a, how many of you have ever been in, in, in an Eastern Orthodox church? Well, I know Brother Callahan has one, two, just, just a few people. Just, well, yeah, just a few people. Um, as most of you know, I was just in uh, Ukraine, and so one day I got to go visit the World War II Museum uh, in, uh, in Kiev, and uh, as we were walking to the underground uh, to get where we were going, there is a fairly large uh, East, uh, Russian Orthodox Church, Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Orthodox Church, whatever. So we stepped in, and uh, you're immediately assaulted by the smells of the incense. Uh, Big issue, as we'll see later on, regarding icons of the various saints and things like that. Um, and the service had just begun, so there was singing and the, the bells, and it was incredible singing. Uh, my, my friend that was with me said, it's normally not that good, but uh, this one was really good. I mean... Uh, recording level good, but it wasn't recording. <laughs> they, were, they weren't playing a CD. Um, it was the actual choir. Um, but these services will go for three hours. 
they will go for three hours. And nobody, nobody cares, and, and no one's actually expecting that you're actually really paying attention to what is being said. There is actually in uh, real orthodox theology the idea of centers of religious energy almost where you have it the idea is get people together at these places and they will be energized they're, they're really big into um, energeo uh, you know the the, the the words that we translate work but they would say it's not really work it's energy it's it's power um, when the church gathers there is power in the gathering and in the location and in the liturgy and it's not so much communication of divine truths from their perspective that's just dry academic forensics um, it's the idea of participation theosis there's a strong de-emphasis uh, upon any concept of original sin at all. There really isn't any idea of total depravity in that sense. Um, and there is, it's interesting, therefore, that in Eastern Orthodoxy, the emphasis is upon the incarnation, not the crucifixion. If you, know, if you, if you look at Western Christianity, there's, there's not much emphasis upon the incarnation. I mean, Christmas is sort of a modern thing, but, uh, but strong emphasis upon crucifixion. But in Eastern Orthodoxy, much stronger emphasis upon incarnation and less emphasis upon crucifixion. Um, because of this theosis idea, participation, energy, um, that kind of, of thing. As far as authority issues go, there isn't, uh, in the West, when you talk to Eastern Orthodox folks in the West, they will sound very much like Roman Catholics in arguing against Sola Scriptura because they don't believe in Sola Scriptura. In essence, and believe me, this is extremely surface level and very basic and obviously subject to all sorts of qualifications depending on who you're talking to. Um, I, I even hesitate to to even talk about Eastern Orthodoxy because it's just, it's so hard to get out, to, to, to get East and West even anywhere near where we can start talking to one another because the categories are just so, so different. But uh, the liturgy and the traditions of, of the church are the ultimate authority and the scripture is to be interpreted within the tradition of the church, which sounds very much like Roman Catholicism, yes. But the tradition is basically frozen in time in what I would identify as the 8th century. Um, John of Damascus, uh, Maximian, some of these, of the, of the biggest, biggest names in orthodoxy uh, are writing around that time period and that's, that's pretty much where they're stuck. Um, there really can't be much in the way of 
you don't have uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman and the development hypothesis, which you end up with in, in Roman Catholicism. You, you basically have uh, an ancient church perspective from right around the time when of the rise of Islam, John Damascus, people like that. And, and that, that tradition just, you know, a lot in, in, in places like Ukraine, Russia, where you end up with a state church, it just becomes a, a hotbed of nominalism. Or should we say a cold bed of nominalism? I guess cold bed would probably be better. And once it anytime anything becomes a state religion, it's a bad thing. But um, especially when you take seventh century tradition, crystallize it, and then turn it into state religion, it's a breeding ground of a dead nominalism. Um, when I first started going to Ukraine, you know, the first thought crossed my mind was, well, hey, uh, I sort of do this almost everywhere I go, but uh, any possibility of uh, getting the local, one of the local Orthodox priests, uh, we can, you know, have a dialogue debate about uh, justification or sola scriptura, and they just sort of looked at me like, uh, uh, no. <laughs> uh, I'm like, well, why not? They don't have any interest in anything like that at all. Evangelism? Uh, no, no, no. They don't. There, there's just. It, it's completely outside the categories and thinking. They, they reach out to to these schismatic evangelical weirdos? No, 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 no. Not gonna do it. Uh, so I was like, oh, well, okay. Um, and guess that's the way it is. And uh, so only here in the West, basically where you get uh, Antiochian orthodoxy, where you get uh, people who have converted to orthodoxy from Roman Catholicism or from Protestantism, they tend to, to be apologetic and they tend to, not apologetic as in, I'm so sorry. No, apologetic as in giving a, you know, you shouldn't be an, or, a, 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 an evangelical because of this, this, and this. But that's, that's sort of a weird response to being here in the US where there's so much religious freedom and, and ability to have interaction. Uh, it doesn't flow naturally from how the Orthodox think in Orthodox lands. So there's sort of a Western Eastern <laughs> Orthodoxy and then an Eastern Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, and they're not necessarily the same thing. So. When, when, if, if we just simply go, ah, it's just, it's just Roman Catholicism with a few changes, it's not really true. Uh, I know that's the easy way to do it, and, and it takes a tremendous amount of work to actually see what the real differences are, and because it's a, it's a way of thinking that's just totally different than our own way of thinking, and as soon as we start asking them the questions that are most important to us, that immediately manifests itself, because they're like, but that's not what's important to us. And um, with all the negatives about sufficiency of scripture and, and imbalances in regards to gospel and things like that, you do have to give the Eastern Orthodox one real strong kudo. Um, they are Trinitarian to the core. 
and they know what they believe about that. That's one thing that there's no confusion about. Um, and sadly, uh, almost any catechized uh, East Orthodox person would put almost any evangelical to shame in their knowledge of Trinitarian doctrine. That's just a fact. Um, and they will say that Western Christians are basically uh, just monotheists with a lot of confusion past that. And the reality is, that's true. I've lamented many times that if we were to if we were to give a quiz to everybody walking out of church on a Sunday morning in a good old, right, do it right across the Bible Belt if you want, you know, uh, right, limit it to good old Baptist churches in the Bible Belt. Uh, how many of them would test modalistic, uh, modalist her heretics as they walk out of church? The eh, vast majority of them. And it's not because that's what's being taught from the pulpit. It's just pure ignorance. There's, just, there's nothing being taught about it. It's just never talked about. Uh, it is part and parcel of everything in Eastern Orthodoxy. So at least on, on one level, you've got to chapeau. Uh, at least they've got, to, got that right. But that doesn't excuse everything else. So uh, the subject is a, is, is a huge subject that is rarely addressed in a meaningfully and, and uh, fair fashion, mainly because I don't know how in book form you can provide the, the worldview transition from our constant way of thought to a very, very different way of thought. It's sort of like when I try to study, I've tried to study Buddhism and Hinduism. I really have. I've listened to hours and hours of lectures from some of the best Christians on the subject of Buddhism and Hinduism. It's like I've just got a whole bunch of bad sectors on my hard drive. And it keeps trying to write to those sectors, and nothing will save. Uh, it, it just, I, I just, and it's probably just because I haven't sat down and, and talked with people from that background enough to, to start hearing and figuring it out. I, I just can't make heads or tails out of it. And so it just, it doesn't save uh, uh, in the hard drive. I, I think that's, I think the difference is I have spoken with Eastern Orthodox folks at, at length enough, and with some of them that were, some of them who knew enough about Western Christianity to sort of help get into the middle to where you could actually communicate. It's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. Um, it's tough to get people to, to really communicate. And, and like I said, over there, so many are nominal. It's just, it's just what you are there. It's not... It's not a strong, heartfelt thing. Yes, sir? Uh, does Eastern Orthodox have more than two sacraments, or do they have a sacramental system? Oh, no, yeah, no, they, they have a full sacramental system. Not quite as fully developed as Rome's, uh, but they have a full full sacramental system. They, they, more than two? Yes, oh, yes, yeah. Um, but again, even then, you know, exactly what is understood by all the categories that Rome would put into the sacramental system in regards to grace or, or things like that. So much of the language sounds the same, but it's not necessarily the same background behind it. It makes it very, very difficult. It makes it very, very difficult. And like I said, Augustine, who is our next topic whenever we get a chance to do this again, um, Augustine is sort of the dividing point here 
because the East looks at Augustine and it's like, eh, no thanks. And so really right there at the beginning of the fifth century, you really start seeing the division that's eventually going to lead to one of the biggest dates in church history, uh, one that uh, would be, you know, certainly if we were to have a test someday, if we were, uh, would, would be one that you'd need to know uh, along with the date of the Council of Nicaea, which is 325, uh, and that's 1054 AD. And that's the date of the split of the East and the West. I didn't even know these fell down. Uh, the split of Eastern and Western Christianity, uh, the, the mutual uh, anathematizing on the part of the Pope and the, uh, I think it was the Archbishop of Constantinople or something like that, but the East and the West anathematizing one another and you have the, the split. Uh, you can sort of see the development, and it, and it goes back to how they view Augustine, and sort of that's, that's where you start seeing those, those changes, those differences manifesting themselves. And does anybody remember the theological thing from last week? I guess I did mention this last week and didn't get recorded. Um, uh, the difference uh, between East and West in the Nicene Creed? The filioque clause, right, where the, the east, the I'm sorry? How do you say that word? Basically, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son also, right? So, Son and, so and the Son, and so it's the idea of the Spirit, filioque, filioque, filioque. So, the Son proceeds from the Father the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son in Eastern Orthodoxy only proceeds from the Father. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the theological things, the fact that in the uh, East, uh, priests can be married, uh, and then the, the diffusion of ultimate authority amongst the archbishoprics rather than the focusing of authority in the one person, the Pope. Uh, these are some of the fundamental differences between East and West. Um, that eventually lead to that split in 1054. Okay? Alrighty, let's close our time with a word of prayer. Father, once again, thank you for this freedom that we have to look back and to remember what you have done in the past. May we uh, always be thankful that you have been building your church, and may we use this time to have the opportunity to look at ourselves and to pray, Lord, that uh, we will be faithful to the calling you've given to us in your word. Be with us now as we go into worship. May you be honored and magnified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.